Jonah, as I mentioned before, if you're a visitor, we've covered a chapter every week. And it's interesting because Jonah has asked God to do something to a group of people that Jonah does not like. These people are called the Ninevites. Uh, The Ninevites were known for tearing people's body apart while they were alive. They were known for skinning them alive. They were also known for sacrificing their children to false gods. And in fact, they were terrorists. Jonah had a lot of anger towards these groups, and he had a lot of hurt towards this group because he has hurt the Israelites. Now you have Jonah having this instant anger when God is asking him to share the good news of who God is to this group of people. Here's what Jonah thought. It's not fair. It's not fair. They shouldn't be able to receive this grace. And in fact, it's interesting, as I was studying this, now I've done San Quentin prison ministry for four years. And every once in a while, I'll share stories about it. And I'll never forget a lady coming up to me after my sermon, incredibly angry with me. She says, you're going to tell me that God is going to forgive a murder. You're going to tell me that God is going to forgive. And she just went on the line. I said, ma'am, with all due respect, you know you normally say that before you kind of throw a verbal punch back. (laughs) With all due respect, but I did want to respect her. I said, ma'am, with all due respect, I know it doesn't make any sense, and I know it doesn't even seem fair, but that's called grace. And ma'am, with all due respect, you didn't deserve it either. I don't know if she ever came back to church, (laughs) but that's what Jonah was feeling. You're going to tell me those murders, those ancient time terrorists, God, you're going to tell me you want them? to hear about your grace and compassion. So here's what happens in chapter 3. Let me give us some background from last week. Jonah basically goes to Nineveh, and in five Hebrew words, here's what he says. You have 40 days or you're going to hell, is basically what he says. That's it. The shortest sermon really ever preached, but the greatest revival we probably have ever seen in Scripture The entire city turns to God, from the king to the animals, from the king to cattle. They all begin to repent. Everybody begin to repent. And so in verse 10, what we see is when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, here's what happens next. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. This is like the greatest victory. This is like the greatest victory for a pastor to be obedient to God even when you don't really want to. And then to see God do something mighty before you and use you, this is a great victory. It would be similar to this. 
I don't know how many of you love the Golden State Warriors. That's a whole other issue. But it would be like Steph Curry being angry because yet the team won another championship. Could you imagine that? They do a post-game interview and he's just angry about it. He's not even happy. Like, well, what is, I don't get it. Steph, what's, what's wrong? It's kind of like this. Jonah just had an incredible victory, yet he wasn't pleased. In fact, he was the polar opposite. Scripture says that he became angry. And, of course, I love to look up the Hebrew meanings for each word here. This just means he was hot. He was burned with extreme hate and anger towards what God had just done. Then here's what he does. In his anger, he prays. Look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, please, God. Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarsus. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. It's interesting that Jonah is now upset with these characteristics of God. Yet in chapter 2, he loved them when they applied to his life. See, when chapter 2 and Jonah was stuck in the belly of a fish, he was so thankful that God was patient. He was thankful that God was kind and slow to anger. Yet when God wanted to extend the same kind of grace to others in whom which Jonah thought they didn't deserve, he didn't like it. He didn't like it. You ever felt that way? You ever been upset because God extended grace to someone you really didn't like? Anybody have a name in your head right now? How does it feel that maybe your name came in somebody else's mind? See, Jonah, I love What John MacArthur says, Jonah was a nationalist. He was a racist. As long as me and my country are okay, I don't care what happens to that country. And God was trying to show Jonah, no, I'm not just a God for you, Jonah. I'm not just a God for the Israelites. I'm a God for this world. And Jonah did not like that. What did, what did this do? What well, exposed Jonah's heart, number one. It exposed what was really in his heart by how God reacted and by how Jonah reacted. And while he's trying to almost get on to God and he's throwing a fit, he explains the most pow- powerful characteristics of who God is. Now, this is going to be good and bad news for you. Listen, you are gracious. You are gracious, God. Why is this good news? What is grace? It's unmerited favor. Grace is is not getting what you deserve. 
Why is this good news today? Because if you're in this room and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has extended his grace to you through his son, Jesus. If you're in this room today, how many times have we sinned against God over and over and over and God hasn't wiped you out? No. He's extended grace to you. Because as Psalm 103 says, he remembers that we are made from dust and has compassion on you as a father would have on his child. What does that mean? Well, think about it. I'm a parent. It means there is no limit to how much grace I offer my child, even when they're running in the opposite direction. Do you not understand that the grace you received was not because you did anything? It was because God pursued you when you were at your worst. Why is this so good? Because you didn't do anything to deserve it. This is why it's so good. Now, if that doesn't draw us to worship, I'm afraid that the head's not hitting the heart. A revelation of how good God is in his grace should draw us naturally to worship this kind of good God. Can you imagine if one by one God had us walk up here and we just stood right here and he exposed everything we've ever done, everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever said. But he doesn't do that. He pursues the wretched. Think about this. Look at this grace. Why doesn't he just do away with Jonah? He's so whiny. And you'll see over and over, I just want to die. Life's not going my way. I just want to die. I just, just unhappy. I don't get my way. Where did his anger come from? From not getting his way. He didn't get his way, so he became angry, yet God was still gracious. God is not only gracious to Jonah. God is also gracious to the Ninevites, giving with them what they don't deserve in a prophet who is coming to warn them so they can turn. Now look at what else he says. Compassionate. That he sees the people group, he sees Jonah, and that he has compassion on them. Jonah's a whiny prophet. Ninevites are evil as can be. And he looks at them both. And he recognizes they're both broken people. And he recognizes they need my compassion. And I'm going to give it to them, not because they deserve it or not because they've done anything, but because it's part of who I am as God. I give grace and compassion to those who don't deserve it. It's what I do. It's who I am. And God was slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. It's interesting. It's often God's loving kindness that draws people to himself. It's the fact that God has been so good to us when we don't deserve it. It's interesting. Jonah at this point, remember they spent three days in the belly of a fish. Some scholars say because of the acids in this fish, when the fish spit him out, he was albino. 
Oh, no wonder why I was so angry. And so we see the natural consequences of sin, yet the goodness of God. The consequences of sin, yet the goodness of God. Look what God does for him. By this point in time, for those of you who um, are over people or have a staff underneath you, uh, this person probably would have been fired by now. Let me just replace them. God is not in the business of replacing. He's in the business of restoring and rebuilding and reconciling. This is what he does for Jonah. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life. This is like the fourth time he said this throughout this book. For death is better to me than life. The Lord said, you have good reason to be angry, Jonah? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he had made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he can see what, got, what was going to happen in the city. Here's what he did. He proclaims and sees people changing. He, he just sits down, almost throwing this fit. And he's looking at the city, hoping, God, will you still ruin them, please? There's a chance that God will still, will you still ruin them, please, God? And he's sitting there and he's throwing a fit. Look what happens. My goodness, how good God is. So here's Jonah in the heat of the day. Verse 6, so the Lord God appointed a plant. Listen to what he does. And it grew up over whiny Jonah. That's the Pastor Noe version of the Bible. (laughs) Over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. In the middle of his poor attitude and in the middle of of him whining, God is still providing. God is still providing. It it happens, this word, a point. Look, it comes up again, by the way. So what did he do in verse 7? God appointed a worm. Verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. God has been appointing ever since chapter 1. Now look at this. He was disobedient in chapter 1. What did God appoint? A fish. He was disobedient in chapter 4 of complaining. His heart wasn't in the right place. What does God appoint? A plant, a worm, wind. It's interesting because God always appoints in order to provide. Now, the appointment is never according to Jonah's preferences. You recognize that? God doesn't appoint according to his preferences. He appoints according to his needs. And this is what God does every single time. He unfolds this. You don't deserve it. This is called grace, but I'm going to give it to you. Nineveh doesn't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to them. Verse 9, then, Jonah said, then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Now Jonah's throwing a fit because the worm ate the plant. The only time we see Jonah happy in these four chapters is when he gets what he wants. Not this church, but some churches I know. But isn't that interesting? If we really put our hearts there, here's what I believe. All of us have a piece of Jonah in us. He is only happy when he gets what he wants. 
An entire city has just been saved from hell. And he's not happy because it didn't benefit him. He only is happy when it benefits him. His theology is pretty jacked up. Then he says this, verse 10. Then the Lord said, you have compassion on this plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? They're saying, Jonah, I care about the most evil so much because I am the creator. That I am willing to go to extreme, extreme measures so that all will know me. For those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ in here, do you know that God appointed that moment that you surrendered your life to Christ? He may have sent a friend, may have sent a pastor, but that was a God-sovereign, ordained moment. And it wasn't because you were living right. That's not why he did it. For some of you in here today, what we see is a guy who keeps running from God. A guy who makes poor decisions, a, bad who has, a guy who has horrible attitude, and God loves him so much. He loves this evil city so much. I have four kids, and I often pray. Here's my prayer for them all the time. God, protect their sexual identity in this world. Keep them pure. Keep them holy. Help them to save themselves from marriage. And God, would you make them warriors for Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about nominal nominal Christians. That was hard to get out. Who just attend church. Will you make them warriors for Jesus? Mighty warriors for Jesus, God. And often when they're sleeping, I'll just stare at them and I'll pray. And I think one day they're going to grow up. And I'm pouring all I can into them. But one day they're going to make their own decisions. And one day their decisions are going to disappoint me as a father. But here are two things I remember in that moment. Number one, I will never stop loving them. I don't care what they came home with. I am their father, and I'm going to love you. No matter how far you run, dad will always be home waiting on you. No matter what you do, dad's always going to embrace you. I'm their father. When I look at them, I see a piece of me. Why does God care so much about the Ninevites? Because when he looks at them, He sees a piece of him because he created man in his image and his likeness. So why does God care so much about humanity? Because he's creator. And you can't run far enough. You can't do bad enough. That's going to cause God to stop loving you and pursuing you. I love to think this. As much as I love my children, I can't fathom this.
but God loves them more. Parents, as much as you love your children, you can't fathom this, but God loves them more. In the midst of their, when they're angry with God, he loves them. When they're running from God, he loves them. In the midst of their sin because their own consequences and their own destruction and their own pain, God still loves them. And we need to remember that God is still pursuing them. I know some of us think in here, well, they don't deserve it. Well, what makes you think you deserve it? Because as far as I know, Jesus died once. As far as I know, that blood covered my sin and your sin and the sins of the world. For those who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What is God doing here? Showing his heart that he doesn't want anybody to perish. You know how the book ends? Here's how Jonah ends with the question mark. I wonder how Jonah would have responded to verse 11 when God says, should I, should I not have had compassion? If there was a verse 12, he probably said, I just want to die, kill me. <laughs> it's interesting because the whole book, four chapters, is, is really displaying God's heart, right? It's God's heart on display of how God is so gracious and patient and kind and slow to anger with us in this room, including myself. Let me close on this story. I was raised by a single mom who was mom and dad to me. In fact, on Father's Day, I would get my mom Father's Day cards. She taught me how to ride a bike. She taught me how to throw a football. She taught me how to shave. She taught me how to tie a tie. She loved me very well. Worked three jobs. But yet I was just a bad kid. I was so disobedient. And I didn't recognize it, but a lot of my anger was similar to Jonah. Because I didn't get what I wanted. What did I want? I wanted a father figure. And it made me angry at God. It made me angry at others. And I would disobey my mom a lot. And I remember us going to a park, and in a park in South Houston, we call it the Duck Park. There was a huge, almost river that ran through it that was pretty aggressive. And mom would always say, honey, you can play over there, you can play over there, but you can't play right around here. Because if you fall in, the river's going to take you. I said, you know me, mom, I'm obedient as they come. I will not. <laughs> and I'll never forget... Disobedience usually leads to our destruction, right? There are always consequences every time, every time. Disobedience has the same destination. That's destruction. And I waited for my mom until she wasn't looking. And when she wasn't looking, I was like, well, how bad can this water be? And I'll never forget. The water is rushing all the way this way. I don't know what I was thinking. But I remember thinking, how strong is it? She keeps saying this is strong. I'm the kid if you say, don't do something. I put my finger in the socket to see, hey, does it really hurt? I remember, and she, we have gone there countless times, and she has told me countless times, do not do this. I put my foot in the water, and it was so strong. 
I was like seven years old, maybe 35 pounds, like a wet chihuahua. <laughs> and it took me. And I didn't know how to swim. And I'll never forget falling backwards and thinking, uh-oh, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> and as I went upstream, thankfully, kept me right along the bank. And there's just this hand. You big dummy, come on through. <laughs> Pulled me out, soaking wet. We live lives where we test God. We live lives where we're constantly disobedient to God. We live lives where the pain that we face a lot of the times is due to disobedience. But I can promise you this, if you are willing to grab it, every time we get ourselves in a situation where we are drowning in this world, God's hand is always, always, always there, willing to pull us up, willing to pull us out of our own mess. Christians in the room. We live in a city that's considered one of the six lost cities in America. We live in a city that's ranked 89th out of 96 least Bible-minded cities. We live in a city that desperately needs to hear the name of Jesus Christ. Christians, I pray with all that I am that we become and continue to be a church that has a heart for the Ninevites of this city and the Ninevites of this world who want to share the same grace that we have received because God is so good. And for the rest of you that have never surrendered your life to Jesus, and maybe you're that person who feels like you are just drowning in your junk. Let me just encourage you. God's hand is there for the taking, if you wish. I want us to pray together. And if you're in this room this morning number one Christians I want you to pray for those that you know God can do it God can do it those that you know who just seem to be so far from God I want to remind you that God loves them deeply I want you just right now to begin to pray to the Lord. Asking God to bring them back. Or asking God to save them. Then there's some in this room 
maybe out in the chapel as well, who you feel like you're drowning. Listen, I promise you because I've lived this life, there is no way out but Jesus. And if you're here this morning, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is, is that river of life is going to keep taking you. And it's going to overpower you. And you'll have no control. And you'll keep going upstream. Drowning in this thing called life. That's the bad news. The good news is that God knew before you were born that you'd get yourself into this mess and that I would get myself into my mess. So he had an appointment. He appointed his son before you were born to die on the cross. To die on the cross for our sins that we've committed against God so that Jesus can take the wrath that we deserve when Jesus comes back, when God comes back to get his bride because he will come back. So he sent his son to die on the cross to be put in the tomb And then rose again three days later, showing that he defeat death. So that when you were drowning, he already made a sovereign divine appointment to say, here's my hand. You don't have to drown anymore.